0: You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM of Wiley University Services and Talent Development, Todd Zipper.
1: Hello, I'm Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Ruben Agbana, co-founder and executive director at the Marcy Lab School. The Marcy Lab School is an alternative education opportunity for underrepresented and underserved high school graduates, giving them the opportunity to make great strides in tech. The key takeaways from our discussion today. First, Marcy Lab School's genesis and journey to becoming an impactful alternative education pathway. Second, The role technology plays in correcting some of society's challenges, and how the Marcy Lab School is helping students tap into their potential for leadership and growth in the industry. Third, the importance of excellent pedagogy and one on one feedback on preparing students for career success. Fourth, the profound impact of equipping black and brown students with language and learning that enables them to express their lived experiences as they prepare to enter their careers. And lastly, how to nurture an ecosystem for alternative education pathways and considerations for doing it at scale. Ruben, thank you for being here today. So
0: excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Todd.
1: Excellent. I'm really excited to talk to you about how you're shaking up the higher ed industry. But first, tell us a little bit about your background. Previously, you were a math teacher, correct?
0: I was. Yeah, I was a middle school math teacher. I was a high school math teacher. Now, I started my career at a performing arts high school in Atlanta. I was a Teach for America corps member. Didn't know that I wanted to to make a career out of education. I was just a disillusioned former econ major that was trying to find a way to do something that actually made an impact. Found my way into the classroom, and I really haven't like looked back ever since.
1: Did you always have a passion for technology, which is mostly what you're focused on from an education perspective today? No.
0: Not at all. In fact, I remember it was my senior year at Duke University. I made friends with this really cool, kind of weird group of guys. Um, and in fact, it was all guys back then. As You know, the tech industry has since tried to really correct for gender equity. Um, There's a really cool group of guys on Duke's campus that felt like they were ahead of their time back in that time in the early 2010s. If you were on Duke's campus, you either wanted to be an investment banker, a consultant, or you might've been pre-law or pre-med. That was pretty much it. I I bet 80% of any given senior class fell into one of those four buckets. But these guys were all into entrepreneurship. One of them was like much older, like five years older than the rest of us because he had started a company and then dropped out of school and then grew the company and sold it and came back. Another guy had started a company. On campus where, where folks were buying and selling textbooks. Others were looking at startups after they graduated, uh, once they graduated. And these were all like the fields and experiences that I had no kind of no prior experience with. And one of the things that they all had in common was that they were rockstar engineers. Like they were computer science majors and they could build the things that would ultimately form the foundation for the companies that they would launch. And I remember sitting down with them and taking a look at their personal projects and just being blown away. It was like they were magicians. Like they were creating things with their hands that ultimately would impact other people's lives and that they would later end up making money on. And I just remember thinking like, huh, like you all have this secret that you all are keeping to yourself. Like, why didn't y'all call me? Maybe I wanted to build a company with you. And I just remember thinking like, huh, like if I could go back and do it all over again, like I would build the skill set myself. Um, like I would walk down your path. I was a senior, and so maybe it's too late to go back in time. But I thought I had this opportunity to go into a classroom, and just because I never was exposed to this, I took it upon myself as as a responsibility to make sure that my students students would be. I said I missed out on this way, but my students would certainly have have everything they need to 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 launch their own careers in tech. So I got into the math classroom and did a lot of self learning with my students. It's like if you finished a homework assignment early, or if you were kind of bored or lacked engagement. You know, we would jump on Khan Academy or Udacity had just came out around that time and like we would do these coding classes together. And a lot of students like developed a passion for technology through that. And, and, and that's kind of the foundation of my own passion for technology.
1: Hmm. So it takes a lot of courage and determination to start a business. And in this case for you, a school, especially for someone who's, you know, still relatively early in your career. So can you tell us about how you got the idea for the Marcy Lab School and how did you get it off the ground?
0: This was, in fact, many years in the making. I started my teaching career in Atlanta in a traditional uh, public district school, and it was a beautiful school environment with so much love, so much respect for community, a lot of longevity and seniority amongst the, the teaching ranks. It's the type of school where alumni from 10 years past will come back to the football game for homecoming. And it was there where I learned that what a joyful, loving community school building looked like. And, of course, we struggled with all the other um, kind of systemic challenges that a large urban public school would deal with. At that time, I was in, in the Teach for America network. And what would happen is that a lot of the public charter schools from up north, the big charter management networks, the Achievement first of the World, kept Uncommon Schools, would come down to Atlanta uh, and they would recruit Teach for America teachers. They would say, "Hey, you're here for two years, but when you finish, you should come up to New York and work with us. We have these really cool schools that are serving a population that looks just like the one you're serving here, except all of our kids go to college at the end. And I remember thinking, like, what do you mean? all the kids go to college? You know i'm I'm at a traditional public school, and we're hustling to try to get you know the majority of our students just to graduate, you know on time. And, and, and these schools are saying that all of their kids are going off to college. And I remember thinking like, huh, have I ever had an opportunity to, to go up to New York? I, you know, I wanna see what that's all about. And so my wife, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, who was also a Teach for America Atlanta Corps member, uh, ended up applying to graduate school to study international affairs. And she got into Columbia. So I was like, okay, guess I guess I'm moving up to New York. And so when I got to New York, uh, I hit up those uh, recruiters who uh, I met uh, first when I was in Atlanta. And said, "Hey, I'm here, and I want to take a, I want to take a couple of tours. Like I, I know I want to continue teaching. I want to teach at one of your schools. And so, I landed at Uncommon Schools, at an all boys school. I stayed there for one year, and my instructional coach got a principal's job, and he took me with him to become a dean at another uh, incredible school called Coney Island Prep. In kind of both of those settings, I kind of saw how the the sausage gets made, so to speak. And I saw what it takes in order to." To be able to say 100% of our seniors walked away from our school with a college acceptance letter. And we were able to say that. And it was really, really cool. We took a lot of pride in it, that we were celebrated for it. And of course, the experience that I had kind of inside the machine was one of figuring out after our students got that college acceptance letter and after they had been celebrated on stage, how in the world they were going to pay for that experience. And it was often anxiety inducing, it was nerve wracking. Because the story that doesn't get told about college a lot in this country is that every single year, a ton of really promising, hardworking students will get into the college of their dreams, but not be able to afford to attend. And to have to counsel a student through that challenge, especially a student who's grown up in a school system that says the only way to a successful life is through this four-year college degree, even if it means you're taking out six figures of student loan debt to pursue it. The counsel a student through that problem is really hard. And I saw time and time again my students fall into what I consider to be two of the biggest challenges in higher education inaccessibility financially. Um, students taking on a mortgage's worth of student loan debt to pursue a major that would track them towards a career that I did not see as a viable pathway to being able to service that amount of student loan debt. That's one. And then I also saw students who would forego the student loan debt trap and, and instead, decided to go to colleges that were cheaper, that didn't have the, the sticker price of the historically Black college or the Ivy League college or the liberal arts college that they had gotten into. What they didn't know at that time was that those colleges have outcomes that leave a lot to be desired. They go into colleges that have graduation rates that are in the 20s, in the 30s, that have average starting salaries uh, for their graduates at $30,000 per year, $40,000 per year in a city like New York. And so for so many reasons, unrelated to how hardworking, talented or how much potential they have, I saw students who uh, would fail to reach their potential through this system that we told them was their answer to every problem that they had. And it was so frustrating. We keep in touch with our students and we watch them stumble through the many roadblocks, uh, of the traditional college system, and and it it caused us to ask the question. I say us, me and my co-founder, Maya, ask the question of what could a different post-secondary school experience look like for these students?
1: Yes. And that's exactly what you're creating here. So a couple of questions as, as you sort of unpack what the Marcy Lab School. First, where'd you come up with the name? It's a creative name.
0: Oh, yeah. My wife and I were living on Marcy Avenue at that time. And one of my favorite rappers, Jay-Z, is you know, you know was raised here on Marcy Avenue. I think it's just a historic street in Brooklyn. And for so many people, Jay-Z represents like a dream realized. And I think to pay homage to that name is something that you know we we, we wanted to do. And then that word lab is kind of reflective of the way that we see our work. Like we see this as one big experiment. Uh, every year we're, we're um, testing a set of hypotheses in service of the greater mission of creating a more equitable, accessible post-secondary education option for students who've been locked out of traditional uh, higher education.
1: Excellent. So, you know, I read on your website, I love this, this quote here, which is, the Marcy Lab School democratizes the path to six-figure income and in tech for black and brown students. Right. So that that pretty much says what your mission is right there. Could you unpack a little bit about what this alternative type of school is, right? We know what the the four-year degree looks like, although that's starting to look different as the the non-traditional student or what we're now calling the new majority student is. And, and in some cases, you're serving that student, although in many levels. Those are, those are people that are well above the traditional uh, 18-year-old student, which I think you're focusing on right now. We know the two-year associate's degree path. How are you uh, different from that? Can you kind of just kind of help us understand this?
0: Yeah. Let me give you a high level overview of, of what it is that we're doing and, and, and maybe creep into to why we've decided to structure things this way. We are a one-year post-secondary school an alternative to college, and we're serving students who otherwise uh, would be attending four-year, potentially two-year colleges. They would likely be attending lesser selective uh, four-year and two-year institutions. They're students who would not necessarily um, have the high school backgrounds that would indicate that they would attend a college like NYU or Columbia, but they're smart, talented, hardworking students nonetheless. In fact, they, in our opinion, are the students who um, fully embody what it means to be a college student in this country oftentimes we use the word uh, the words untapped middle. When we think of any high school senior class, you can think of those students in that upper quartile. They're going to uh, gain admissions to the types of schools that have endowments that allow them to meet the needs of all the students that they serve. They have the, the career readiness programs. They have the extracurricular programs that make a well-rounded and excellent college experience. If you're coming from a low-income background, you're likely going to have your financial needs met by one of these colleges that likely fall in the top 25 or top 50 of the U.S. News and World's rankings. In short, we think those students are taken care of. They're good. And they're going to be supported by nonprofits like Posse and Breakthrough that are going to help them make the transition into this unfamiliar environment. But in short, the students in that top 25% of the senior class, they're good. College is working for them. But think about the students at that bottom, perhaps 25 percent, students who are aspirational and want to make something of of their futures, but have the the academic profile of someone who is not considered to be college ready, perhaps by SAT score or GPA. Their background suggests that they will be looking for a high quality program that will prepare them for the workforce and perhaps opens up the possibility for college for them later in life. They're served by workforce development programs that have done an incredible job for for decades of helping transition folks into uh, upwardly mobile careers, Uh, folks uh, like Year Up, for example, or Empower. And then we think about all those students who are in the middle, the students that every single high school guidance counselor or, or teacher can identify with. Like they certainly are going to college. Like if you pull that student in the hall and ask their teacher or their counselor where they're going, it's like, yeah, they're going to college. They're not going to go to an Ivy League college. They're not going to get a full scholarship to one of their local state colleges. But like they definitely are going to college. And then if you were to ask them, no matter what state they're in and what 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 city they're, they're located in, like name potentially a college that they might be competitive for. They're going to name a college that, by the data, has outcomes that, you know, we wouldn't consider to be satisfactory for our own children. We want to serve those students because we believe that there's a ton of untapped potential there, not just like untapped potential for earning power, but untapped potential for leadership and growth. And so uh, instead of a four-year program, we put them through a one-year rigorous, both technical and non-technical academic program. Our first and only major at the moment is focused on computer science and software engineering. We're preparing students to take on roles with the title of software engineer, associate software engineer, QA or adjacent roles. We target salaries that have a floor of $80,000 per year and have a ceiling, highest Marcy Lab School salaries, over $200,000 per year for their first job. And so the technical components are what we believe make the best of a, of a really good collegiate computer science program inspired by the kind of career applicable skills found in kind of a for-profit coding boot camp. If they had a baby, that would be our technical curriculum. But what makes, I think, our program special and why we're uniquely suited to serve the student population that we do is because we, we focus uh, just as, as much, if not more, on the non-technical co- coursework, civic studies, race and identity development, career fluency, financial literacy, our students read the authors that inspired us and that we think are some of the most important authors of our time, Tennessee Coates, Michelle Alexander, Beverly Tatum, James Baldwin. And They talk about how technology can play a role in co- correcting some of society's biggest challenges today and how, in fact, they are the people that are going to be playing a role in, in correcting them. And so, you know, you put those together and a student walks away from the Marcy Lab School with a job that any top Ivy League computer science graduate would be envious of, but they also have like the mindsets, the network, the community that allows them to to kind of thrive in that job and, and move up in their careers as well.
1: I love how you're talking about the baby between the two different models. You know, I've obviously been myself studying the coding bootcamp model really from the beginning, and we've done a bunch of stuff at at Wiley. And it's unrealistic to ask somebody in six weeks or eight weeks or maybe even 12 weeks to have some kind of life transformation. And a year is much more realistic, right, to allow them to obviously learn the technical and hard skills, but also some of those human skills, soft skills that you're talking about that just come with time and experience. Are you... building any kind of internships or applied learning models, like you're talking about the lab, into their their one-year journey with you?
0: Yeah. The last quarter of our year-long program is for application, and it looks like one of two pathways, what we call either our practicum program or our capstone program is what students are tracked into by their last quarter. Practicum is like it sounds, it's engineering and practice. It's an internship or an apprenticeship with one of our partner companies. And the goal of that is is not to kind of gain exposure to the technology industry, but is actually to demonstrate that you can add value to a team that is shipping products in the real world. The ideal outcome for each of those is a conversion to a full-time job uh, by the end of that period. There are some students who are better suited or have an interest in further exploring their curiosity in the software engineering space. And our capstone is kind of like our in-house apprenticeship. We ask students to work in teams to complete some research-based advanced project in some field of software engineering. It could be on deployment infrastructure, it can be product design, but at the end of that three-month capstone project, our students are dealing with, uh, have a project that demonstrates their ability to deal with concepts that would only be asked of someone in the field to contend with once they get their first promotion, technologies that typically only software engineer twos or kind of early mid-level engineers get exposure to. So we've had students who have uh, built their own load balancers or students who built their own component libraries and so what we find is that when our students are able to take those projects into the interview process, they're able to kind of speak the language of their interviewer and kind of demonstrate a level of experience that often isn't seen with fresh college grads or, or boot camp grads.
1: So I know you're breaking the model, <laughs> revising the model in a lot of different ways. Maybe reforming the model is the, is a better Term also in the admissions process. I don't think you accept or ask for SATs or ACT scores or GPAs, but yet these individuals have to be at the highest level of performance to to get these jobs, which you're talking about here. How do you think about the admissions process? What what do you do? And I'm sure it's rigorous. I'd love to understand that a little bit better.
0: Yeah, 100. I'm I'm going to take the long way around to that answer because you said something that was really thoughtful. That they have to be at the highest level of performance in order to compete for these jobs. That is true. I think what we see in terms of growth from day zero to the end of our program is greater than what exists at uh, the traditional college, but even even more so than the most selective and elite colleges. You know, our country's top colleges do a great job of accepting students who have the resources and academic background that, like, would lead you to believe that they're going to be very successful no matter what intervention you apply between ages 18 and 22. For us, we're unapologetic about our core belief, which is that great teaching really, really matters. Excellent pedagogy matters, it makes a difference. It made all the difference in the world when they were 14, 15, and 16. But for some reason, when they turn 18 and they go off to college, we have a society, as a society have accepted that it's okay for them to sit in a room with 200 other 18 year olds and listen to one person reading from a legal pad. And then we wonder, why they don't make the type of academic gains necessary to be competitive for incredible jobs. Like we push our students, we push the hell out of our students and we push our instructors so they know how to push our students and support them at the same time. And so most Marcy Lab School students come in having little to no coding experience at all. And then by the time they graduate, they're competing in the interview process with students who went to schools like Cornell and Dartmouth and Yale and, and, and UVA and Rutgers, et cetera. Someone might hear that and say, well, that's impossible. Like you're selling me something. Well, think about if you took computer science 101 at our country's, one of our country's greatest CS institutions, if you took it at MIT, if you took it at Harvard, if you took it at Carnegie Mellon, how many times, Todd, would you guess a freshman or a sophomore might get feedback from the professor in an average CS course?
1: From the actual professor themselves, not even a teaching assistant? Yeah. (laughs) Probably you can count that on one hand at best.
0: Probably yeah, probably zero. So so then include (laughs) TAs. How often might you get feedback from
1: the TA? Uh, maybe five times.
0: Right. A couple midterms, maybe a couple problems. Yeah. Yeah. Our students are getting feedback from their their professors at the Marcy Lab School every single day. Written feedback and verbal feedback every single day from someone who previously got paid to write software at a competitive company.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is really groundbreaking. I mean, I want to ask you a question, you know, in a second about scale, but you're not afraid to lean into, I mean, I loved how you framed this middle 50%. I think that's what you talked about, which is obviously the vast majority of learners out there that you feel like you can serve and essentially take from very to little or no coding experience to getting software engineering jobs in one year. That is incredible. That's groundbreaking. It also shows how much instruction matters, which is what you're talking about. And we take for granted because you and I went to some good schools and we both had similar experiences, right? Where we, we had maybe feedback a half a dozen times in an entire quarter, right? And we crammed for a final exam just to get by to the next step, right? Which is not mastery of knowledge.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, and I think for us, it's 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 such a it's a responsibility because the stakes are so much higher for our students because we're intentionally working in communities where the safety net is not as strong, it's more porous. And so to charge a student thirty thousand dollars and to not do everything humanly possible to ensure they make it through and, and reach their full potential. You know it shouldn't be acceptable, but but in fact, I think that's like par for the course. Oftentimes, in in, in our higher education system.
1: Hmm. So, how do you charge for this this one year program? The program is free of cost to students.
0: Um, This is our our third year, and you know we've been fortunate to have a network of supporters and partners who are also very curious about this experiment that we're running. Uh, we, We happen to be funded largely by corporations, corporate foundations, and family foundations that want to see this model grow and learn from it and be able to kind of proliferate our learnings to to larger players in the system. And then when we think about like the the long-term sustainability of the program, there's two pathways that we're really excited about. The first is our employer partners investing back into the program that they're benefiting from. We have uh, an incredible set of employer partners that have come to rely on the Marcy Lab School for uh, consecutive years for the majority of their early career engineering hiring, certainly the majority of their diverse early career engineering hiring. So uh, we're excited for them to be able to invest in the program uh, to offset the, the cost of operating. And also we're we're pursuing avenues to tap into federal and state funds that are allocated towards this type of post-secondary and career training.
1: So this isn't an outcomes-based or an income-share type agreement program. Obviously, there's plenty of income coming down the pike for these individuals. This is free of charge, and they jump right into these jobs. Just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding that. Yes, that's right. That's, that's really incredible. So how do you think about scale? You know, how do you think about, because I know you're just kind of getting started off. You can tell us how many students are are right now enrolled, but how do you think about this impacting thousands, if if not hundreds of thousands of students in the coming years?
0: Yeah, 100%. We are just getting started. Our first year, our first graduating, our pilot class in 2019 was nine students. We started 30 students last year. We're likely to do 60 students this year. We're likely to do a little more than 100 students next year. So we're, we're just ramping up. When we think about our medium-term prospects for scale, we want to be operating at the size of a small college here in New York City. Uh, the idea, I think most kind of, so, so we're incorporated as a nonprofit in kind of most nonprofits that kind of exist in our sector, that it seems like the standard pathway would be to get to the scale of a couple hundred in New York City and then look up and figure out what other regional tech ecosystems could also benefit from a similar program. But we were really clear in the very beginning that we, that we did not set out to nor are we in the business of trying to start like a coding boot camp or an incredible coding boot camp. We're trying to create a college, a true college alternative for our students. And so operating at the scale of a small college serving a few thousand students per year in New York City looks like multiple academic tracks that kind of mirror the same ethos and same bar for engagement and rigor that our software engineering program has. And when, we do, when we're operating at the scale of a small college, serving a couple thousand students a year in New York City, we're going to be able to influence policy in a more meaningful way. We'll have a seat at the table with industry in a more meaningful way. And it creates an even better student experience. The depth and breadth of relationships that are there, interdisciplinary, professional, academic, and just social dialogue begins to look and feel more like a true college. And then there's this question of like this, this, this group that we're trying to solve a problem for is really, really big. Even when we're serving a couple thousand students a year just in New York City, that is a tiny drop in the bucket. And so the question is how do we have the type of impact that makes a difference at scale? And what it is, is like by seeding an ecosystem the way that I think about this is like the Marcy Lab School is going to continue to grow. We're going to increase our footprint here in New York City. We're going to, you know, at some point in the, in the distant future, we'll look at like what other, eco, what other cities could benefit from a model like the Marcy Lab School. But it's not about the Marcy Lab School. It's about the, the other schools that we will inspire. Like someone needs to be right now building the Marcy Lab School for journalism or the Marcy Lab School for a suite of business careers. like we want to be able to show people that these that this student population has the potential to do two things: achieve academically at a level that they haven't been given credit for before, and to be be able to break into industry sectors that previously had been gatekept from them because they didn't have a degree. And if we can show people that students from the Marcy Lab School come out of here with six figure job offers with equity, with health insurance, with retirement plans, then somebody's going to be inspired to figure out what other industry they can shake up that way and I think if we have this world, when I, when I think about the world that I want my my little girl, my 10-month-old daughter to grow up in, I want her to be able to graduate from high school here in New York City and know that she has a ton of options. She's going to look at all the colleges that she could attend, and she can look at, she's going to look at all of the, the schools that look like the Marcy Lab School that ask her to not sacrifice anything in terms of her near-term or long-term earning potential or career optionality. And she's going to see them as viable options, too.
1: Yeah, I'm, I want to keep hitting on the funding aspect, right? Because I, I'm only guessing here, but I'm I'm assuming that your cost per student is significantly lower. Not only is it only one year versus two or four years, that alone brings down the cost dramatically. But my guess is you're just operating more leanly. So we we should talk about that. But you know, ultimately, there's there's tuition, right? That's what exists. Whether it's funded by you know federal loans, whether it's subsidized by the government or private pay, there's a model that that is largely broken uh, for a lot of folks, but it, it works. And now there's a whole movement around free college, which I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around because you're essentially offering free college, but it feels very different here. Like you talked about the, so if you give free college to, and again, community colleges, I'm a huge fan of, I've talked a lot about on this podcast, but some of the results, some of the outcomes are challenging. Now, there's a whole reasons why. We don't want to get into this right now. But, you know, the outcomes that you're talking about at a dramatically lower scale are completely different, right? And so how do you think about this? I just threw a lot at you. But the idea of offering a free or a low-cost education in a way that can scale, eventually do you have to charge tuition or eventually do you have to partner with the government to sort of offer these funds up? How are you thinking about this? Yeah.
0: Yeah. We have decided as a society, or I don't know who, who all played a part in this decision, we pay for post-secondary education in this country. That's that's not a decision that the Marcy Lab School gets to make. It would be great to live in, in a society where we invest in the post-secondary education of, of, of all of our citizens. That is not where we are right now. And so as a startup that aspires to be a college or a challenger to college, like, whether or not we pay is that's not a it's not a question that's up to us. It's a question that's up to our our policymakers. And so, in, in short, like at one point in the future, we likely will charge a tuition, but it's not the priority in this moment. Because if we can focus on doing a couple of things really really well right now, we'll, we're going to be able to make the decision about like what the sticker price of the Marcy Lab School is. We'll be able to make that decision from a position of power. One, we have to focus on the outcomes right now. We have to focus on really doing a good service uh, to our employer partners. And three, we have to focus on determining what is core to the program model and what can be left alone. And if we can do that, and by the time we, if, whenever that, that time comes around, we decide to put a sticker price on the Marcy Lab School and have students pay into the program, we'll be doing so after we already have a consistent, growing a reliable pipeline of employer partner contributions. We'll be doing so after we have the right set of uh, government interventions in place that also offset the cost of our program. And we're already doing it from a position of, of power in that our program is 25% of the length of a traditional college degree. And so we can do so in a way that favors our students first. The kind of flexible repayment movement, the, the kind of income share agreement movement, certainly, of course, like began with like great intentions. But at the end of the day, the, the sticker price is the sticker price. And we can get as creative as we want about how we repay, when we repay, but a loan is a loan. And if it has to be repaid, the price matters. And I think one of the, the, the downsides of like the emphasis that has been placed on like the repayment model is that we've we've lost track of like the thing that really, really matters. And that is like the price of the the, the program that the students are ultimately on the hook for.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're really challenging all aspects of the model and willing to to sort of rip it up, keep what's working, what's not working. I, I just absolutely love what you're doing here. One of the things that really is hitting home for me is you keep coming back to it as your your employer partners, right? Whether they're funding some of the education or they have the job waiting for these students at the end. Is really powerful, and I call it employer down or or right to left education. That's an in- increasing movement, and I think you you've just kind of defaulted to that, which I think is is part of this the idea of driving these incredible outcomes. You know your costs are going to be better <laughs> than the typical model eventually, and I, I think I, I really just want to highlight that you eventually you'll figure out the funding model at scale as long as the outcomes are there for for your your stakeholders which you know your learners and your employers a few other questions for you around the model i mean it seems like you're doing a lot of stuff going back to that career and the employer. I've read some things that you, you know, you help them with their resume or their LinkedIn networking, not just a LinkedIn profile, but their networking. You've talked about a mentor and assigning them someone there. Can you kind of unpack some of that as well? Because I think that brings to life that it's not just learning a course in, in sort of algorithms, but it's, you're actually helping people to build a career at the same time.
0: Yeah, 100%. I'm going to start at a place that, you know, you might not necessarily traditionally view as career development, but I see it as as that plus so much more. Our students are just finishing up a unit um, in their leadership and development course. They're finishing up a unit on mass incarceration and the criminal justice system. They just finished Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And this is part of a larger unit on systemic oppression. And there's something that is just so powerful about a bunch of young people who like, you know, at this point, if i if I walk into a room at my school, I can say with confidence that that you all will be making one hundred thousand dollars or more in eight months. I can say that with confidence because the job's already taken care of. Like we you know you do what you have to do, then that job is waiting for you, yeah. You know? And these are a bunch of students from the community that I call home. And to be able to say that, like you're gonna be stepping into a position, of both economic, but therefore like social power. And you have over the course of the past one year, not just analyzed like JavaScript internals and data structures and algorithms and pass by value and pass by reference, but like the set of policies that have led to the over-policing of your community. You've understood that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a distinct set of individuals that organized and implemented policy that had an impact on you and the people that came before you in your community. And therefore, you know that you can be one of the people who actually corrects for that. It's like, one, we're going to give language to your lived experience. When we teach in our units terms like microaggression or implicit bias, what that's doing to a young or intersectionality, what that's doing for a young person is like, it's validating the things that they have already lived. It's like, huh, like I like I experience something, and like the way that racism works in our society is like the, the way gaslighting works. Like, oh no, no, you didn't really experience that. That's all. It's a figment of your imagination. It's like, no, nope, here is our set of scholars who so closely identify with this experience that you have that they have created a set of terms to more help to help us more precisely identify with them when they come up in the world, so that you can note it in your lived experience. So one, it's real. This thing that you're dealing with, and then two, like to orient them in the world to the set of leaders who have created structures to help them see themselves as leaders and change agents for these things. And so when you walk into that engineering pod, we know because of the state of the industry, you will likely be the only black woman there, Dream. Here's a set of terms that you that, that are going to describe some experiences that you have. One, you can come back to your community and we can talk about these together because we have a set of shared language. But two, for the past year, every single day, you have had a bunch of really smart, loving, caring people breathing life into, into you and, and sharing how much we believe that you are going to be a part of the solution to this thing, that your very existence just adds value to that team. They're better because you're there and you're going to be a part of changing that culture for the better for you and for the people that come after you.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful. And, and a term that comes to mind for me is job ready, right? So it's one thing for a certain population to be job ready. It's another thing for your your population that you're serving. And the things you have to do is just more and different, right? To get them job ready. So, cause the employer at the end of the day needs them to produce, needs them to lead, and you're giving them all the tools, not just to, okay, I've, I've got the salary but to be successful there and like you're saying even going farther than that to change the culture in the right direction i mean the level of maturity that these folks have to go through must be tremendous cuz i mean in my company we're learning some of the lessons you know and realities that you're talking about at, at a much not in college right at a much later later date in the process so they have to, they have to run through a lot of stuff uh, to get to this job ready place really powerful thank you So, wow, this is, uh, I'm just kind of digesting all this right now. What other areas are you unintentionally disrupting, right? I feel like you're just starting from scratch almost, right? You're looking at the model and not intentionally trying to break it. But where else do you see disruption happening?
0: The industry. Like, that that's where our systems change agenda comes in. Our students are often... The first engineers to join their team that do not have a traditional college degree. They may be working beside peers that have come from excellent coding boot camps, but they may have a college degree in philosophy or political science. And so, you know, we come from the same peer group. But we're now three years in and we've had companies that have hired from our our fellowship for three straight years and like they're they're changing meaningfully the demographic makeup of these engineering teams and as a result like recruiters are beginning to think differently about like where talent comes from and so it's not about like just the pathway from the marcy lab school onto squarespace's or spotify's or the new york times or jp morgan's engineering team but it's about like how we shift the mindset of hiring managers and recruiters and if you can recruit from the Marcy Lab school, then certainly you can recruit from Texas Southern and certainly you can recruit from Hunter College if you've only in the past recruited from Carnegie Mellon and in, in, in Stanford and you know Duke University.
1: Yeah, you know, there's an article today that talked about Google's certifications. They've been doing this for a couple of years now. They get a ton of attention when they come out with the new data point, which they they quote hundreds of thousands of students taking their courses or their certifications, they're all free. And there's some really interesting headlines. And I kind of want to get reflections. It's a little bit of a loaded question here, but you know, they're talking about hundred thousand millions. They're talking about, they will accept folks going through these four courses or these six courses equivalent to their typical, like you got to go to get a computer science degree at one of those schools you just mentioned, Ruben. I love it. I love that they they understand what the employers need, the, one of the largest employers out there in tech, but do they really think people can go through that experience self-directed? If it's free, it's most likely self-directed in the hundreds of thousands or millions and get the same result as a Marcy Lab School. I feel like they need to partner up with you and sort of build scaffolding in a way that just can't be done in a self-directed way with taking some courses online and some pretty videos.
0: Yeah. Yeah that's tough because on one hand you're creating high quality content that people can access at scale is you know unequivocally a good thing. but to your point like there's a question of like how likely is it like what is the, the total like of the share of folks that have accessed this content what proportion of them have the capability of being completely successful on their own autonomously navigating the self-directed course? this stuff is hard. You know, like there's a reason why these jobs command the salaries that they do just because like it is it is challenging. I think when those things come out and they hit headlines, one of the potential risks is that we lead people in influential positions to believe that the challenge of getting someone into a great job all along has been poor access to quality content. And that was never the issue. There's always been good stuff out there. Like, I think, I think, you know, we're improving on the margins, but it was never about the content. We're writing open source software. Like, by definition, it's literally all online. The question, though, is like, how do we clearly demonstrate to people what the bar is for rigor at the level of, like, interview onboarding and success on the job? How do we provide them with the supports in order to get there? And then how do we, the thing that's not mentioned is like, how do we bring them into the networks that allow them to access those jobs in the first place?
1: Hmm. All right, we're getting close to wrapping up here. So can you look out five to ten years? I mean, what vision do you have for the Marcy Lab School? What what does success look like?
0: Ten years out, we're serving a couple thousand students per year across multiple academic pathways. We've inspired a few other models that look just like this and are, and are meeting the needs of communities that we're not equipped to serve, that are training students for career pathways that are not within our sphere of excellence or w- within our areas of interest. And we're learning together. And we as a collective are pushing a political agenda that makes it so that these alternative models are more accessible to students. We've changed the narrative. We're beginning to push the narrative of like what people view as like. Prerequisites for success. One of the things I think about Todd, because one of one of like at this point, because the outcomes, like there there are enough proof points for people to, to see that this is a viable pathway. But one of the things that people are attached to is like the narrative of what we believe college to mean in this country, and like what a college degree means for your social standing in society, right? And that is mythology that like we created, and so we can undo that. And one of the ways that I think about it, Todd, is like there used to be a time prior to the creation of standardized testing in the 60s. There used to be a time in this country that if you wanted to go to a school like Dartmouth or Brown or, or Columbia or Harvard, you pretty much had to go to an elite boarding school. There used to be a time where your social standing was tied to like, what boarding school did you go to? Not anymore. It's like you could have went to Exeter and I went to Southeast Raleigh High School in Wake County in Raleigh. But we both got to the same place. And it's like, if that were the case, like we both can acknowledge that we had different experiences, but there's not a single part of you that believes that you're better than me because you went to some boarding school because we're both here. We've already seen that happen once before. And so you you, you tell me if we have this world 10 years from now where there are a ton of accessible options that are leading students to great outcomes, like the mythology of what college means for someone down to their inherent being, like that begins to become stripped away.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like this idea that you're coming back to in, in terms of inspiring others with the model. It's it seems like I interviewed the founder of the Minerva Project, and they're a really exciting oh, model. Obsessive. Yeah, so sa- same am I, and, and and I think it's a similar. I mean, they're ten years ahead of you guys in, in their experiment, but I think they're trying to now figure out the licensing, if you will, of their model mm-hmm. because it's unlikely we're going to have a university with millions of students, right? We're going to have lots of shapes and sizes, but the innovations that Minerva or Marcy Lab School is creating, I think we need to pay attention to that. That would be interesting, and I'm going to look forward to to following your story for sure. So, is there one thing you want to make sure our listeners today walk away from understanding from our conversation?
0: Yeah, when we first came up with this idea and we bounced around the city of New York talking to anyone who we thought could help move this idea forward, one of the biggest challenges that we faced, Todd is that we'd walk into a room with some potential, you know, foundation investors or, or with uh, some potential employer partners, perhaps potential individual donors. And say, like, we have this idea that would ultimately like call students to call college and its value into question. And they would say, well, I don't know if I agree with you, like college was the best time of my life. And I would say, well, Todd, that makes sense because you went to Stanford. You went to one of the best colleges in the world. And it was on that listening tour that I realized that most people don't realize that not all colleges are good, that like not all colleges have great outcomes. If there's one thing that I want people to walk away with knowing is that like, in fact, the data would show that like many colleges leave students worse off than when they came. Many colleges do not graduate the majority of students that enroll and have very, very high student loan default rates. And so, in fact, telling a student to go to college just because it is a college is dangerous. It's dangerous advice for young people. And I think it will take another five to 10 years for us to see the full impacts of the damage that we've caused to communities by telling every single one of them that college writ large is, is a net positive without holding colleges accountable to, to excellent outcomes.
1: Amen to that, Ruben. I'm cheering I'm from the same or singing from the same hymn book. I think... There isn't enough accountability. There's a reason why we have $1.7 trillion of debt. And I don't even think students are in in paying back mode because of COVID. So who knows what happens when they start that engine back up. And colleges keep enrolling, right? And not really being held accountable to, are we doing right by these students long-term? They're probably Sending messages to folks that graduated; those that didn't, they're not sending a message to. And those messages are, "Hey, come back and 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 donate." <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I wish you all the best. This has been awesome, Ruben. You're, you know, I think you're doing incredible work. I'm rooting for you, and I can't wait to see what you do in the future. So, Ruben, it's been a pleasure. Until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an
0: educated guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universitieservices.wiley.com.